Well, hello again, uh, and welcome to Citizens. Uh, my name is David, people call me DC, uh, and I serve on staff as a family life uh, pastor. Uh, so glad to see everyone, and always a joy to be able to worship uh, together. You know, for the past month, we've been in a series uh, titled The Fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Apostle Paul, who was a uh, prominent leader of the early church, uh, uses this idea of fruit to describe the newness of life uh, that grace produces within the Christian. Uh, it is a singular fruit, uh, much like a diamond that has many different sides that contributes to its brightness and its beauty. Uh, this fruit is uh, the new life that uh, the Spirit gives and provides for us. Uh, and, and those qualities are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, what grace does is it introduces a new operating system in our lives that reconfigures the way that we relate to God. And as a result, it changes the way that we interact with the world and with one another. It frees us from the value system that measures someone's worth by their titles, how much they earn, uh, relationship status, and or resume. You know, we realize that once grace becomes our primary way of understanding our worth, it removes fear, anxiety, and pride, the very things that plague our world and plague our lives. See, the gospel tells us that you are loved, accepted, and approved, not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so then the Christian life is about growing into and embracing who we already are. It is a progressive experience of discovering the riches and blessings that are already there for us to take and grab a hold of. Jesus has set us free, but now we are called to enjoy and live into that freedom more and more. So freedom is a framework we've used to uh, describe the different quality and characteristics that the Spirit provides in this fruit. Uh, and so we've communicated and, and learned that love as a freedom from selfishness, joy as a freedom from hopelessness, and last week, peace as a freedom from anxiety. And so today we have another dimension of that fruit that we want to learn, and it is patience. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 16 through 25. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, the passage will go up on the screen behind me. And as we've been doing, uh, I'll read the first uh, few verses, and when we get to verse 22, I'm going to ask us to recite uh, those uh, remaining verses together. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, now together in one voice. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Man, back-to-back weeks of uh, topics that are very exposing. So last week was peace, freedom from anxiety. And just as the argument was made uh, that we are probably the most anxious generation uh, that all previously before us, the argument can also be made that we are the most impatient generation as well. But part of it, it really isn't our fault. Right? Technology has conditioned us to expect things faster, quicker, and with more efficiency. Right? Next day delivery. Uh, I know Prime Now was a thing once, right? two-hour delivery. The speed of the internet getting faster and faster, streaming services. Right? You, where you don't even have to watch commercials anymore. There's no wait time. It's such a different time now than even a decade ago. You know, there was a survey done uh, to kind of track the behavior of pe- people's online shopping. Uh, and the findings aren't that shocking, actually. Let me share some of these with you. 47% of consumers expect the website to take two seconds to load. Two seconds. 40% of consumers will abandon a website that takes more than three seconds to load. A one-second delay decreases customer satisfaction by 16%. A one-second delay. You know, Amazon kind of did a test and uh, with these findings, and they discovered that, you know, a one-second delay would actually cost them 1.6 billion dollars every year if their website slowed down by just a second. All right, we are living in a world that just cannot wait. And so, when we think about the idea of patience, there's so many different places that uh, we could point to and say, "I can definitely use more." Patience. All right, personally, I, um, Jane and I, we have four young children. And I can honestly say that we wake up every day uh, with a deficit of patience. Uh, we have no patience at all. Every command is, um, fall, uh, you know, before we give any command, it's just hurry up. Right? Hurry up. Get ready. Hurry up. Brush your teeth. Hurry up and finish your food. Hurry up and get your stuff and get in the car. Hurry up. Put on your seatbelt. It's just a life of hurry. I have no patience at home. And for others, there's a lack of patience and probably figuring out what you want to do in your life, your career, maybe discovering meaningful relationships and friendships, driving in L.A., right? The idea of even getting married or family planning, these are difficult things that we are all kind of waiting on. We can all use more patience. But what exacerbates our impatience is also the access and the window into other people's lives. You know, we see stories and we start comparing, wondering why our lives don't look like other people's lives. Why our kids don't seem as happy. Or why don't we have as much things as other people do. Or the experiences that other people are experiencing. And so every time we open up our phones and get to look at other people's lives, it makes us impatient. We wonder why our lives look so different. 
And then we start asking the question and evaluating that old saying, right? Good things come to those who wait. Is that true? Do good things really come to those who wait? Because everything around us seems like it's not. It's the people that actually are aggressive, who are in a rush, right? In the speed in which our life is operating, this world is operating, waiting seems like a disadvantage. You know, uh, Jason and I, we're going back and forth, and how do, we, how do we talk about patience? What does it free us from? And what we ultimately landed on is patience, freedom from resentment, freedom from resentment. You know, there are certain areas of our lives where innovation and technology can dramatically decrease the wait time. But there will always be inescapable seasons of waiting, drawn-out time of delays and, and lag, which then makes us frustrated and disappointed. You know, the patience that Scripture calls us to isn't so interested in minor annoyances and frustrations we have at home or at school, in our commute or in the workplace, but the type of heavy and perpetual waiting that actually affects our hearts, our minds, and our faith. It's the type of waiting that produces cries like the one King David cried out to God in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, waiting in a long line or being stuck in traffic is one thing, but feeling lost defeated, and abandoned is completely another type of experience. And I think this cry resonates with many of us. Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my depression and anxiety? Where were you when I needed you the most? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you pull through for me when I needed you to? See, when God calls his people to be patient, and when Paul and all the other biblical authors talk about it, it's always in the backdrop of suffering and pain. You know, most of us, most of the world, and especially here in the West, we do all that we can to avoid and minimize suffering in our lives. That's why we study hard, we work hard, and do all that we can to position ourselves to experience as little discomfort as possible. And I would even venture to guess that some of us even pursue religion in hopes that will bring ease and comfort into our lives. And we can, to a certain degree, improve and cushion our lives, but given enough time, live a little longer, and suffering will eventually find us all. Jesus guaranteed his followers struggle and hardships, and most of Jesus' closest friends died horrible deaths. The early Christians were persecuted, ostracized, killed, taken advantage of, and was imprisoned. And one of the greatest objections to religion is the problem of suffering. God and suffering are mutually exclusive ideas. They cannot belong together. But when we carefully study scripture, when we read about the different stories of everyone's lives in the Bible, that's not what we see. 
And even if we examine the life of Jesus, that's not what we see either. We find that there's profound purpose and meaning in pain and suffering. And so then we get passages, absurd, ridiculous passages like James 1, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. This is what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Another translation, let patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's crazy. So counterintuitive. We want to rid of suffering. James says, don't waste it. There is value. Extract as much as you can in your seasons of pain and suffering. You know, during the pandemic, I... I found myself encouraging people to use faith to get them through their difficult time. I was, I was kind of using faith as kind of a therapeutic tool to help them cope with their suffering. And I think there is definitely a use for that, but I think it is incomplete. According to James, pain has a substantive value that without it, we would actually be at a severe disadvantage. In other words, suffering isn't a throwaway experience, something to dismiss altogether, but rather a resource that will assist us in this journey of faith. Pain is going to be used to help us finish this journey of faith. That is what James is saying. You know, cooking is actually one of my favorite hobbies. Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. I know you're like, how can a pastor not have Easter and Christmas be? But Thanksgiving is, is for me. It's because of, of the food. I love turkey, but only during Thanksgiving, but I really love it. And so, you know, recently I've understood the process of letting the meat rest. And the science behind that idea is, you know, when there is heat, right, the juices are attracted to heat within the meat. And so once you grill or once you cook uh, either a steak or a prime rib or a turkey, all the heat is on the outside. And so what would happen is if you cut that open immediately, all the juices will flow out. And that's why everyone hates turkey, because it's dry. It's not the turkey's fault. <laughs> you have to let it rest. By letting it rest, all the juices are spread all throughout the center. And that's the idea. Let it rest. Let it sit a little bit longer. Resting and sitting in suffering is the last thing anyone wants to do. It doesn't make any sense. But what James is saying and what God is telling us is that it's doing something. If you will let it work. You know, one of the trials that the Christians were facing that James addresses in his letter was the problem of poverty and abuse. There was a wealth gap between the Christians and their neighbors, but there was also a wealth gap between Christians and other Christians. And what we discover is that there was a system of oppression. Christians were be being taken advantage of. Their bosses weren't paying them a fair, fair wage. And there was this gap of wealth. 
even within the church. And so James calls out the rich oppressors and tells them to change. But then he goes to the oppressed and tells them, be patient. Be patient. You know, anger is an appropriate response to injustice. The Bible gives us permission to be angry, but to not sin in our anger. Anger is such an important character of who our God is, a characteristic of our God. And as image bearers, we should reflect that characteristic of anger. But unlike God's anger, ours is often polluted with sin. We hate, we gossip, we desire vengeance. You know, the early Christians knew that violence and retaliation wasn't an option for them. So then where did this anger go? We need to release it somehow. And if we can't do it externally, what happens then? We process it internally. We execute justice internally. We punish those who have offended us by harboring bitterness and by resenting them. We silently destroy them in our hearts, canceling them from our lives. And we grow cold and callous towards them. And in destroying them, what we will discover is we're destroying ourselves. By internalizing your anger, you think you've resolved it. You think you're just done with it until they come up in a conversation or the next family visit or when you see them on a mutual friend's Instagram post, when you see them at church, all these feelings reemerge. Hurt, pain, injustice, being offended. And what, 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 what happens is you become a prisoner to your own resentment. Bitterness becomes a, a type of restraint that immobilizes you to experiencing the freedom that God has for you. You know, we can resent people, resent family members, communities, churches, those closest to us. And many of us, if we're honest, we resent God. And for good reason. We have good reasons to feel these things. You know, some of us, we've been, some of you have been carrying wounds uh, of abuse and trauma for years and years. It affects your sleep. You can't sleep at night. You can't interact with others freely because you never got the justice you deserved. When you went to people in your pain and suffering, they just dismissed you. Maybe you did cry out to God for healing and restoration, but every visit that you went to the doctor, just bad news after bad news. Healing never came for you. And so you lost the loved one, and you're left with this gaping hole in your heart and a grief that is overwhelming. You know that children are a gift from God. And so you and your spouse, you start family planning, and you, and you try for weeks, months, and years, exploring every option that is out there, but it's just disappointment after disappointment, trying to figure out whose fault it is and if there is something wrong with you. Maybe you've been putting in hours after hours at work, even overtime, but there is no upward momentum your career. You feel stuck. You're at a dead end. 
It's a relationship that you can't avoid. You just can't avoid it. And it is this relationship that causes you pain. Nothing you do can ever satisfy them. Even your best efforts is just critique and criticism. And every time you see this individual, it's just reopening wounds. Delays after delay, disappointment after disappointment. We start thinking and wondering, is this faith thing actually real? Is God real? And what we do in our impatience is we start compromising. We also even think, I must have done something wrong. There's something wrong with me. And so we blame and even resent ourselves. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they just walk away from God. It's not working. How does one patiently endure in drawn-out seasons of pain and suffering without hating God, ourselves, and others? How do we do this? What type of patience frees us from this? You know, there's a difference between godly patience and passive inaction. The Bible doesn't tell us to just take it all and absorb mistreatment and justice and, and be a mat that people can just walk all over. If there are opportunities for us to make things right, to confront, to make peace, to reconcile, we should. We should. But I just want to pause and just say, we got to be cautious. We have to tread carefully before doing that. Do not rush the process. And I would even suggest talk to a good friend that you trust or even talk to any one of the pastors or anyone on staff before you try and make things right. Because the likelihood of the one who offended you to offend you again is very high. From my experience, from my counseling, it is high, the probability of them hurting you again. Because they might deny what they did. They might be unrepentant of what they did. Or they won't even remember what they did, which is so hurtful. And so there's a possibility that they may not even apologize. They may not even say sorry. And that is a high probability. So the question then is, what do we do then? What do we do when they're unrepentant, they don't even remember, and they're not even sorry? And worse yet, what if the person that offended you is no longer living. They're not around. You cannot connect with them anymore and confront them anymore. What do we do with that injustice? What do we do with that anger? Are we helpless just to be resenting that person for the rest of our lives? To be a prisoner of our bitterness? You know, what James does is very interesting and very important. He gives these suffering Christians perspective. And he reminds them of a promise. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Wait 
Be patient. You know, there's so many hard lessons that I've learned as a parent. I know there's a lot of young parents here with young children, and you probably learned the same lesson that I'm about to share. There's a specific age where kids don't really understand the concept of time. That age is anywhere around from two and a half to four. If you say to them, these young kids, hey, in two weeks, we're going to go to Disneyland. Wow, isn't that exciting? These two and a half and four-year-olds, they don't understand the concept of time. So what happens five minutes later? Are we going now? And for the next 14 days, every single day, at least three times a day, they're going to be asking, are we going now? It just drives me crazy. And so now Jane and I, whenever we have to plan anything in front of our kids, we speak in code, right? We, we just, or we speak in Korean, right? Because they don't understand that. You know, our, our family's going to Hawaii this, this coming uh, weekend because one of my closest friends is getting married. We only told our oldest son, Deacon, because he understands the concept of time. Two weeks? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can wait two weeks. We didn't tell our middle two because we will never hear the end of it. They don't understand time. Wait. Be patient. God knows. God sees. And nothing gets past him. James was offering perspective. See, if all we have in this world, if all we have is this world in this lifetime, and we never are able to experience justice for the wrongs that have been committed against us, I'm sorry, but that's it. That's the end of the story. You just have to deal with it. But what James is saying here is that there is no statute of limitations on God's justice. Whether it's in this life or in the life to come, God will make things right. He will fix every wrong. You know, Paul, again, wrote to the Roman church. This is what he says. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, this is just so absurd. How? How can we love our enemies when they've committed such wrong things against us? This isn't easy by any stretch of the imagination, but there's an assurance here that God will make things right. He will make things right. And this truth not only allows us to be patient in the midst of injustice, but actually perform acts of kindness, which happens to be next week's message. Remember that justice may be delayed, but it will never be denied for those in Christ Jesus. You know, when Paul talks about love in his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the first thing that he says about love is love is patience. Another translation is love is long-suffering. Long-suffering. 
you know, and I share this with married couples, God's desire is to cultivate in our lives a long-suffering type of love. So he gives you a spouse that will make you suffer long. <laughs> God offers people in our lives, our children, to stretch us. Pain and suffering has such a profound purpose, and it is such a powerful tool. And one of the things that it does is that it loosens the very soil of the roots we planted ourselves in. It shakes the flimsy foundation we've been trying to build our lives upon. It exposes the weakness and its inadequacies of wealth, of fame, of people's approval, of pleasures, of things. None of these things can hold our weight. None of these things can we build our lives upon and be confident in. And so what pain and suffering does, it tells us you're in the wrong soil. And so when the soil slowly starts to erode, we realize that there's only one. There's only one love. There's only one person whom we can build our lives upon and not be put to shame. Through every frustration and disappointment, I believe that God is trying to untether us from insufficient sources of joy and satisfaction. In that space of letdown and discouragement, he invites us to look at him, to reestablish our hearts in the soil of his grace. He says, I have something better for you. You know, in 2018, I think it was 2018, McDonald's introduced a cook-to-order quarter pounder made with fresh beef, which took a whole minute longer but the drive-thru uh, customers weren't aware of this, uh, made to order, cooked to order. And so what happened in the drive-thru? Customers got irate. They were so frustrated. They're so impatient with this new quarter pounder. But once they discovered what McDonald's was doing, what happened? Their patience grew. You know, 1970, when uh, Heinz ketchup, you know, the old glass bottles, they discovered that they needed to give their customers a heads up of the slow flowing of the ketchup coming out of those bottles. It was really simple, right? You have to angle it at a 45 degree and then hit the 57. It'll come out very easily. A lot of us, we have no idea what we're talking about because we have the squeeze bottle. And so in their kind of, um, their marketing tactic, they had to give their customers a heads up. It's going to take time for it to come out. And it improved, right, customer satisfaction. And what's the, what, what, why am I sharing this? Anticipation, expectation is so important when it comes to patience. Knowing what to expect is the key to patience. Knowing what to expect is actually where we can be freed from our resentment. You know, I know that many of us here are, are hurting. And the last thing you want to hear is to just hold on a little longer. I know that's the last thing you want to hear. You know, we're living in a space between promise given and promise fulfilled when it comes to this idea of justice and restoration. Promise given and promise fulfilled. We're right in that middle part. We're called to wait. 
But how can we know for sure that that time will come? You know, the beauty of the gospel, and I think that's one thing that's very unique about the Christian faith, is that God knows our suffering, and not only does he know our suffering, he experienced it with us. See, Jesus isn't indifferent to our pain. He's actually present with us in our pain. He knows better than anyone what suffering is. But the crazy thing is, Jesus willingly subjected himself to a life of suffering, to a life of frustration and disappointment. He endured as he watched his closest friends deny him and betray him. When he could have called a legion of angels to destroy the very, very ones that were crucifying him, what did he do? He prayed for them. He patiently endured. He took the lashes. He, wrote, he wore that crown. And he hung on that cross for you and me to save us. He is well acquainted with a life of sorrow and grief. He isn't indifferent. He is with us. But we also know this amazing truth through Jesus that all of the sorrow, all of the grief, all of the loss, all of the pain that we experience now, it's temporary. It's temporary. It will not last forever because Jesus rose again from the dead. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. How do we know that this time will come? Jesus rose again from the dead. See, when we look at Jesus and what he did for me, what he did for you, when we see his long-suffering, and when we reestablish our hearts in this love, we in turn are given the power and the fuel to long-suffer for others, even our enemies. You know, if, if you're in a season right now where you're just hurting so bad, and you're just going through a very difficult season, I just want to encourage you, please do not suffer alone. Part of the responsibility as a body of Christ is that we are called to carry that burden for and with you. And we have resources. Reach out. Come, come and talk to myself or Pastor Jason. We'll love to walk with you and the rest of our staff. We want to walk with you in this difficult season. But there is a freedom that we can experience, a patience, a patience that can release us from the resentment and bitterness that, that, that we are carrying with us. And that is found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's look to him and let's anchor ourselves in that gospel truth. Let's pray together. I want to invite us to just take a, a brief moment um, to lift up your, your, your pain to God. Whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, this, this day, um, that you can cry out to Him. Cry out to Him and ask Him to help you endure, help you to persevere, or even ask Him to give you wisdom. How, Lord, can I Resolve this problem of resentment and bitterness in me. Give me wisdom. Give me something, a step to take. I just want to give you guys an opportunity to lift up your hearts to God, and I'll close us in prayer.
God, in our finite ability to see and, and to know um, what you are doing in our pain and suffering, in those moments of not being able to explain, not being able to figure out, Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you help us open our eyes to see with spiritual eyes what you may be doing and give us the eyes to see that one day you will return you will come back for every one of us and you will make every wrong right help us to be assured of that give us a trust that we need to believe in that so that we can be freed from the prison of bitterness and resentment thank you Jesus that you went on that cross to die for sinners like me and that you not only died but you rose again to free us to give us freedom and joy love peace and patience we long for these things may you cultivate these things within us and may we plant ourselves in your grace we give you all the glories in jesus name we pray amen